there is a half a trillion dollar industry called outsourcing, which is basically middlemen who companies pay double or triple the actual salary of the end individual that they work with. And these outsourcing firms have worked because it's basically the only way that you could quote unquote access said talent because you didn't have an entity over there, by the way. And so, you know, Panther believes in a world where you pay a simple SaaS fee to hire anyone anywhere in the world, but then you pay them whatever you want to pay them. And so if you're willing to pay uh, $150,000 for an engineer because they're incredible, and by the way, one in SF would cost two fifty, like that engineer should get one fifty. They shouldn't get forty. Hello and welcome to Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview extremely interesting entrepreneurs, investors, and people living really high leverage lives in a bunch of different fields from real estate, crypto, um, copywriting, advertising, marketing. We've really talked to uh, human resources. That's the episode we, we did today. There's just a lot of content that we've produced with a lot of different entrepreneurs doing really amazing things. Um, and today's no different. And so we're glad that you're here and we're looking forward to you listening to this episode. Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Matt Redler, who I'm hoping becomes a household name, kind of like the, oh my goodness, I'm really, really fudging it here, like the Straight Brothers, the Collison Brothers, uh, like them. He's building a company called Panther HR, which enables any company to have the superpower of compliantly hiring any person from any country on the world without having to worry about doing the paperwork themselves or any of those complicated, really annoying details that Matt explains how complicated and annoying they are in this episode. Matt is 23 years old. He's a young entrepreneur based in Tampa, Florida. We walk through his two failed startups before the startup uh, and the relationship between all of those companies and this current company. We discuss why he dropped out of the University of Florida to become an entrepreneur and take his shot and swing for the fences. We discuss how this current startup Panther has raised incredible amounts of money from big name investors like Eric Rees, uh, who wrote the lean startup, Naval Ravikant, Packy McCormick from Not Boring, Kyle, who's the other guy from your sweatshirt? Uh, Delian Asprov. Yeah, Kyle's wearing a sweatshirt uh, from that guy's company, Farda Space Industries. Uh, so we got some really badass investors on his team, and we asked him how the hell he did that and what his advice would be to anyone else doing that. And finally, we discussed kind of the overall kind of backdrop of this episode really is just what the implications will be of unlocking a global talent pool to all employers. Really exciting conversation. I'm going to switch to it now. Enjoy. Matt, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We appreciate you coming on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me, gents. Glad to be here. Of course. Uh, your company that you started, we want to ask you about that right at the start. What was it going on in COVID that kind of inspired you? You saw trends, like what is your current company? Why did you start it? And like, what did you notice that kind of really motivated you to get going? Um, yeah, so Panther is a global payroll for remote teams. We help companies hire anyone anywhere because there's incredibly talented people all around the world. And the most highest, the, the highest performing companies are not limiting themselves to a small talent pool, but they're hiring the best damn person on earth for every position. Um, so the way that we ended up, my co-founder and I working on Panther is we were working on another startup that, uh, just did not have product market fit and, um, the kind of final straw was that it required people to get together in person, COVID hit, we literally could not offer the service anymore. So we started to wind things down 
Um, but I was the only U.S. employee at that company, Shefit. Um, my co-founder, as well as the rest of our teammates, were all spread across uh, Eastern Europe. And so, long story short, you know, this was right when COVID hit. We really didn't know what the what the VC market would look like. Um, it ended up being a lot, you know, better than than we anticipated. But uh, so we had to immediately stop spending money. So my co-founder and I took ourselves off payroll and we made it our highest priority to co to connect all of our teammates with other opportunities for them to have soft landings. So we started to play like a startup matchmaker, uh, you know, connecting everybody. And uh, long story short, the easy part was finding startups who, you know, had really high conviction about working with them. And, and that was easy because they were great people, great at what they do. And um, candidly, you know, there was an incredible bang for your buck uh, for working with individuals, uh, in this case, in Eastern Europe. So we had a, a number of companies that were very high conviction about hiring our people. But when I started to explain to them that in order to actually employ uh, someone in another country, you have to set up a legal entity, uh, also known as a foreign subsidiary, in that country. You have to have a local bank account to be able to run payroll. Um, you have to learn the local employment law. You have to figure out local accounting, HR, legal, and payroll. And so um, long story short, the, the hell yeah very quickly turned to a hell no. Uh, it just felt like an onerous, foreign, super expensive process. And even if they were willing to go through all that trouble, the real challenge was that this process uh, in each country takes a few months if you're really lucky and up to about a year and a half if you're not so lucky. So there was no guarantee that if they did all this stuff by the time they were done that our teammates would have still been available and on the job market. Um, and so that's why we decided to build Panther. Um, behind the scenes, we basically operate a global network of subsidiaries uh, on behalf of our customers so they don't need their own. Uh, and like I said, they could just hire anyone anywhere. Yeah, that's an amazing story. You know, first of all, I want to commend you on you taking yourself off payroll and making it your highest priority to find your team members and the people that relied on you um, a place to work. I think that that's, Thank you. you know, very, very telling of, of what type of person you are. Um, and then further, you know, before we dive into, I guess, a little bit more about Panther and how that global subsidiary network works. Um, I want to talk about what it was like to find product market fit, because I know that you've had two startups in the past, um, or may and maybe more. And I know Lewis and I started a company in the past that I would say had no product market fit. And so what was that, that process or, or that period of time? Like where, you know, you're like, wait, this problem is not solved. And I think that we might be able to figure out a solution. And, and like, what was sort of some of the data that you were finding that um, was evidence that you were right in your beliefs? Yeah, so, um, you know, you could describe very vividly both not having product market fit and having it. Um, not having product market fit just comes down to feeling like, you know, for you to grow, for the company to grow each month, it really felt forceful. Like everybody has to be pushing at 120%, like you're pushing a boulder up a mountain. And that doesn't even guarantee that, that good things will happen. Um, on the other hand, like having product market fit is the feeling that you're solving a real, actual, serious pain point for your customers. That even though, you know, products are far from perfect, they not only are willing to use it, but they want to pay for it. Um, and so that was the big difference between my prior two startups and, and Panther today is we happen to be 
solving an actual problem. We're, we started problem first, right? We wanted to get our teammates hired. We know that other companies want to be able to, they meet incredible people from around the world, but how do they actually uh, hire and pay them without breaking a whole bunch of international laws? Um, and so it's just felt easier um, from a, from a, from a demand perspective, not to say that Panther isn't a very complicated uh, operational business, right? Like actually solving the problem that we're going after and making something as fragmented as global payroll feel stupid simple. That's really hard, right? When Whenever people are like, what keeps you up at night? It's that we run a very complicated business, um, but we're, we're really privileged because we do solve a real problem. And so when uh, you know we meet companies who are just remote first and uh, they just want to hire the best people who apply for every job and we approach them with our solution, uh, it, at that point, it, it is pretty straightforward. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's an investor of yours, but I was reading, I've been reading Not Boring a lot lately and Packy uh, describes kind of that same prob that, not problem, that same solution for product market fit. He was talking about Ethereum and how, you know, it's growing like crazy and people are building upon it despite the fact that the gas fees, like the, the cost of doing it is like ridiculously yeah. high or that the video game Axie Infinity that people like in other countries had to pay more money than they had to start playing the game and like they still would start doing it. So when something was growing in spite of being like massively inconvenient, that exactly that's when you know it's real um yeah and and panther is far from perfect um you know i feel like the type of company we're building uh is a a stripe or i should say that i let me actually because i'm not trying to brag so instead i'm trying to talk about the the magnitude of the problem we're going after so i think that global payroll is as fragmented as credit cards were pre-stripe and i don't know if you saw i think it was on the generalist packy referred to it in one of his pieces, Packy is an investor in Panther, by the way, uh, where uh, it's it's illustrated how for the first, I don't know, five or six years of Stripe, they had one product line. Uh, and six years later, they added their second. And then in like the past three years alone, they've like added 10. So it's one of those businesses that are just like so complicated, but once you solve in Stripe's, in, uh, Stripe's case payments, there are so many things that can build on top of that. Um, I don't know, fraud protection, tax, like the list goes on and on. And Panther is similar to that, uh, where it's like not your average six to eight year startup, but realistically at the very least the 10 to 20 year company. Hmm. Are you kind of saying that if you really, really tackle payroll, then you know you could start getting into recruiting or like what would the other, the other angles be if once you like yeah, really sure. attack payroll? So the nitty gritty of how Panther works is we, we run these subsidiaries and we act as what we call the local administrative employer in each of these countries. Uh, and so we literally own the employment relationship. And so there are just a lot of um, opportunities there. So whether that is that we, you know, create unbelievable international healthcare plans, uh, or we add on top international background checks, which is something we're releasing very soon, or we do uh, instant transfers, or we give all the employees debit cards with special benefits, or we do employment verification, or I don't know, there's just a lot of things that we tax solutions. It's kind of like there's this, um, center it's a platform right so the the main focus today which is probably a 10-year journey to get right is let's make employment and basic payment um 
as easy. So let's make that internationally as easy, if not easier than hiring locally. That's like step one. Um, but then after that, there's a lot of things that you can do by holding that powerful platform um, that sits in the flow of funds of what could be trillions of dollars of salaries, taxes, and benefits around the world, has the potential to be the world's largest employer. Um, there's just a, a lot of, you know, potential things to do later. Uh, to be clear, nine out of, you know, 90% of those things I probably don't know yet. Yeah. Um, it's just exciting. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that if you weren't looking that far ahead, it'd be concerning, uh, but you are, and, but you've still got this problem in front of you, which is payroll and solving it um, massively uh, or solving it well will be continue to be difficult. But my question is about, I guess, the more nitty gritty pieces of it. And it's like, okay, so you've got, you know, Spain, you've got Nigeria and you've got Singapore and each one of these places has vastly different language, different, um, you know, just everything about the, the, the way that their business environment works is, is, um, not congruent. And so how do you, without having to go into each of these places individually and create uh, the subsidiary. Is there a way to do it at scale or are you doing it like one by one by one no. by one? Yeah. So, so building the solution that we're building is a ridiculous um, process. It's, but the beauty of it is it's like Panther has to do it once we have to do it right. And we're doing it on behalf of everybody else. And then nobody else should ever have to uh, fly to Azerbaijan to set up a subsidiary there because they met someone incredible and uh, there should be no reason, no red tape as to why you shouldn't work with someone great like Jamil, who we just brought onto the Panther team. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you are doing that hard work though. You're, you're flying to Azerbaijan and meeting with somebody to start the subsidiary. That's right. How would you consider your, um, I guess, like your centralization risk to be? Because like if, you know, it, it seems like a, a big attack vector if Panther was to, you know, have a large problem in Azerbaijan and 90 companies in the United States that use Panther can no longer, you know, pay their employees. I don't, sorry, Kyle. I, I don't know if I fully understand the question. Yeah, I, I think I. Okay, Lewis, go for it. So like if the if you're the one that owns the business relationship with that country on behalf of these companies and something happens with you and the business relationship in that company in that country like where that country like for whatever reason gets really upset with your company do all of the external companies you've hired on behalf of suddenly have an issue with those employees from that country from a compliance perspective. So I think for any business that sits in the flow of things mm -hmm. so Panther sits in the flow of the employment relationship for like, you know, the reason why it's so easy to accept payments now on the internet is because it's Stripe who manages the relationships with the credit card companies, the banks, et cetera. So like in theory, yes, to the same way where if Stripe were to, uh, you know, piss off a, I don't know, a merchant or a card issuer, then the companies who use Stripe's products would, would run into trouble. But, um, you know, payroll is, is what we do is very serious. We are in charge of people's employment. We're in charge of making sure that they get paid on time. And and the one job that companies trust us to do is to stay compliant. Uh, and so we have to um, take no shortcuts. We have to invest in uh, you know building the or hiring the best people to build world class solutions. Um, 
And and to be honest, it just makes sense for us, right? From from a company or, or an investment perspective, to invest in a single company whose sole focus is like you know this, it, it removes uh, otherwise margin of error. In the same way, where if Twilio messes up a relationship with one of the cellular carriers, everyone who uses Twilio has trouble. But that's the one thing they've got to do right. And for us, it's staying compliant and making sure people get paid on time. So, are you proactively? onboarding a process for every of, I know, 180 plus countries, or are you waiting for there to be some demand? Like, are there, you know, 25 countries that account for the 80% of the global talent force that you're getting on? And then if someone suddenly decides they want someone from a niche country that you've hadn't yet worked with, or are you just starting at 180 and just working your way through the list? So the, the, to clarify, um, Panther today is available in 150 countries. Um, the way That's that we got nice. started with, with this type of, of availability is we, we have a proprietary partnership um, with a company powering our legal infrastructure today. Uh, we're in the process of transitioning that internally. And so um, we will, you know, one by one, starting with the most popular countries, uh, internalize it, which uh, creates a lot of uh, opportunities for us to revamp the whole process from being a, a kind of service human-based process to a modern, delightful, automated, templated, productized one. Um, and so we go one by one, most popular to least uh, popular. Uh, and, you know, that popularity isn't the only factor. There's also like some countries are just way easier to do this in than others. Um, and so, the, I mean, look, the good news is the break-even point for Panther in one country is is relatively light. Uh, and so even if you take a quote unquote niche country, uh, while a single company may have zero, one or two employees there, the fact that we're employing internationally and, and you know, our goal is to be the global arm of every company, uh, it still makes a lot of sense to be set up like this in every in every country where legal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that the um, that legal relationship has been very valuable up to this point, and I can't imagine the complexities that they are. Uh, facing in terms of just all the paperwork and, and everything that goes into it. But could you speak a little bit to the, um, I guess, unlocking of, unhuman cap of, of human capital that Panther has the opportunity to unlock? Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's really unbelievable, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on it I'd like to hear. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate it. It um, it feels like a privilege to be able to work on what we, what is likely the one really good thing to come out of these crazy two years. Um, and it all stems from back in the chef of days, my last startup, it just felt like we were working with, we had like a contrarian perspective, which is we were working with these incredible people, but this was their first time being part of an internal startup and not being like each of them individually part of some like outsourced division of the company. Um, and so for the longest time, I, I just think that many Americans have been um, kind of narrow minded. And by the way, I'm going to throw myself a little bit under the bus here. Before I met my co-founder, Vasil, before I started Chef It, before I was introduced to incredible people that were just outside of my narrow vision at the time, I thought that, uh, you know, building a product outside of the United States meant it was somehow worse. Uh, of course, my view is very much matured, like by meeting people and, and um, defeating those ridiculous stereotypes. And I think the rest of the world has a lot to do there. Um, but the point is, these are incredible people. Um, and I don't know, it's just, um, 
for one reason or another, they haven't gotten the economic opportunity that uh, because of nothing like just borders um, and a superiority complex. So I think Panther does a couple of things here. Um, number one is Panther allows these individuals to be internal employees, just like anybody else, uh, for their favorite companies to earn equity, um, you know, to make an incredible living. Um, and what people used to have to do is they would have to uh, leave their home countries, oftentimes immigrate to uh, somewhere like the United, uh, to the United States or um, you know the UK, whatever, uh, to experience, for example, the startup. Um, bubble, for lack of a better word, like this crazy scene that we live in. Um, and they would leave their families and their economies behind. Um, and this, this concept is known as brain drain, uh, where these countries are left in cyclical cycles of poverty, uh, or I should say economic underdevelopment, uh, to paint with a more accurate, broader brush, uh, because their, in theory, their best talent leaves, uh, and graduates. And so, Panther removes the need for that. Um, and at the same time, I think this kind of secondary separate element is that for the longest time, uh, venture capital has not flown uh, to many countries because their quote literally is not enough or there, there wasn't enough engineers there. So, for example, if there was a you know startup that was bound to be uh, the next $100 billion company, but they were in Mexico and they were solving a real problem and they were incredible product builders. Oftentimes they would just be ignored. There would be no VCs entertaining that market for that reason. But with Panther, every company, no matter where their headquartered or their founder happens to live, is a global company. They can access the talent pool everywhere. They could hire uh, people in San Francisco or people, incredible people in Kenya and Nigeria and Germany and France. It, it doesn't matter. Um, so those are the elements that we're most excited about. We get to support some incredible companies. Uh, we're supporting companies that are building factories for rockets, selling to NASA and SpaceX. We're supporting companies that are trying to defeat um, aging. We're supporting companies that are um, giving millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of capital to other startups. So just like the ripple effects of Panther succeeding and, and allowing these global teams to exist is is thrilling. That is, I think, what Kyle is hoping for with asking that question. He's like, I know this is something that's happening, but you're going to explain it better than I am, so so do it. Uh, so thank you for, <laughs> for that. I think that that was what we wanted. So speaking of investment and venture capital, uh, one thing that really captured our attention was the some of the investors you've brought on to your team. What was your process, motivation for bringing on investors? Uh, did you need to to like be able to afford this massive global rollout at once? Because that's like very different from trying to bootstrap, right? It's, it's difficult to bootstrap your way to being compliant on every country on earth. Was it a capital problem? Was it also talent? Like what motivated you to bring on investors? Why did you get the investors you did? And kind of how did you approach that whole approach to this problem you're solving? Yeah, I, I think I'll tackle the question first of why did we need investors, which mm -hmm. as you kind of hinted at is the fact that we run a very expensive upfront cost infrastructure business. Um, and so it, it made sense to do so. But also, I think Panther is one of the uh, fraction of a percent of new businesses being created that actually have venture-like prospect to it. Um, you know, like I said, Panther sits in the flow of funds of what could be trillions of dollars of salaries, taxes, and benefits. We could be the largest employer in the world. Um, and so it, there's an opportunity for Panther to be a, a very, very large company to 
not say numbers because numbers are seem stupid. Um, so yeah, in terms of how we decided who to work with and how we had the privilege of meeting some of these individuals, um, networking is really hard. When you have it, it's way easier. So, you know, this is my third swing at bat. Um, my first company, I didn't raise a single dollar of uh, quote unquote professional capital, uh, just a little bit of friends and family, which was a total privilege and allowed me to swing and miss and learn and grow. Um, my second startup, I think to raise 800,000 in our pre-seed round at Sheffit took like four to five months. Uh, and for, let's say it was four months. So for 15 out of those 16 weeks, we literally got nothing. Um, and it wasn't until I reached out to someone who, uh, connected me to the first VC I've ever actually got a meeting with that we got our first yes. And then that VC intro to the second one and we got our second yes. And it was honestly weird because we were getting no's, no's, no's constantly. And then you finally speak to people in the space that understand what a moonshot is, which is, you know, it's not about, uh, ensuring that you have a 100% uh, success rate of at least getting a single, but it's, do you have an opportunity to hit a grand slam? Um, and so throughout Sheffit and, and networking on Twitter and, uh, you know, asking for warm introductions of the investors that we were privileged enough to, to buy into us on our last business. By the time we started Panther, um, I was in a better place. It's all a sliding scale, right? So like in terms of, I think that the network I have right now will be, fingers crossed, 10 times bigger over the next few years. So like, uh, I'll just say better um, coming into Panther. And so I started posting on Twitter and LinkedIn about what we were building. Uh, and and to be honest, it just made intuitive sense. Um, the, the business fundamentals are pretty straightforward. We do this one thing, it's a fixed cost. We simplify that Keith Raboy has, I think it's still his pinned tweet. It's like you find a industry that's massive, but fragmented and with a really poor NPS and you, you know, um, you, you, um, tie it all together into a single solution and build a modern delightful version of it. Um, and that, that's what we're doing in a, in a big industry. So, uh, as soon as I started posting, we, we got a bit of inbound, um, interest in the investment. And then we just utilized, you know, those investors to continue to quote unquote, like climb further and further down the network. So, um, one funny story, for example, is there was a community of entrepreneurs that would play video games together. And um, I won a contest, uh, not that I was the best Warzone player, but I like randomly won this contest that introduced me to uh, Arjun at, at Tribe Capital to play StarCraft with Arjun. I've never played StarCraft before. And StarCraft is one of those games where like you do not get it right the first hundred times. But uh, I played with Arjun. I brought in my co-founder because he's played StarCraft a bunch. Uh, we jammed, and uh, Arjun ended up ended up writing or Tribe Capital. Ended up writing Panther a, a cool check, uh, and then I asked Arjun for an introduction to Henry Ward at Carta. And uh, within you know 15 minutes of meeting Henry, Henry was in, and then Henry was like, "Oh, Carta has a venture arm as well." And Carta Ventures came in, and I don't know. It's just those types of things open doors. Uh, Eric Reese was like a huge. When I forgot how I got the introduction to Eric, but like Eric is like one of the most connected people in the Valley and is uh, not forget the Valley on the internet, I guess. <laughs> so opened a lot of doors. Yeah, that's hilarious. I um, I was on Twitter or something today, or maybe it was a YouTube video and it was a guy talking about how uh, he'll give people 20 or 30 minutes for coffee, 
but if they want an hour, they can come work out with them. And it sort of sounds like you yeah. had the the Panther version, the the globally remote version of that by playing StarCraft or a video game with them. And, and you know, that's how you guys figured out if you were uh, compatible. So it's really cool and, and uh, new age for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's a great point. In fact, I actually saw, I think like the, the first um, incident or occurrence of a video game uh, session leading to an investment was... Um, Dalian at Founders Fund mm. investing in Ramp because they met over Fortnite, uh, and Ramp now in like yeah. a year and a half is worth like four billion. I think like his brother crazy. works for Ramp too. Dalian's brother. Oh, yeah. I've got a Varda yeah, Space yeah. Industries hoodie. I'm a big Dalian Dalian fan for sure. Yeah. I chatted with him. I chatted with him. Yeah, it was yesterday or Monday. I'm waiting to hear back. We'll see. Cool dude. Um, Panthers Panthers raising again. So exciting times. It's super exciting. I think, you know, one thing we asked you right at the beginning was what were some differences between having product fit and not having product fit? And I think, you know, these 15 to 20 minute series of yeses might be another uh, indicator of your the product market fit. If, you know, you're approaching investors and <laughs> one after the next is in, that might be another indicator. Yes and no. Uh, I think there's some there's some level of fit there. And, and by the way, like, let, I don't want to sugarcoat, like we get no's all the time. Yeah. Uh, fundraise, like, you, you know, you got to find your biggest supporters and that needs to be one person. Um, you could literally have one investor who will support you the whole way. It doesn't matter if everybody else is like, uh, no way I'm giving you any money. Um, and so for invest, like, I don't know, for investors, they're like, it could this be a massive company so much so that I can return my entire fund and get a yacht? The truth is that is the framework that they're looking at it, which is very different from product market fit, which is, you know, does this make, um, does buying this turn me as a customer into a better version of myself? And so like when we sell the companies, we're not selling compliance, we're not selling payroll, we're selling them this superpower that they can not turn away talent. It's not like only hire internationally and don't hire in your home country. It's like open your careers page to say, you know, the best person that applies, you hire them. And that's it. That's the superpower that Panther gives you. It's a simple as amazing that. one sentence um, description of your business. I want to dive a little bit into you. I know you're, you're a young guy. How old are you now? Uh, 23. Okay. Yeah. You're pretty young. Um, so what is the story for you? Like you're, you're on your third swing. It doesn't seem like the conventional route was ever really an option for you. What was the, what was your upbringing like that led to this entrepreneurial adventure and, and why have you decided to, um, I guess, swing for the fences? Oof, great questions. Um, okay. My, the, without spending too much time, my, my upbringing, my mom was a public school teacher uh, and my dad was a psychologist working for the government, um, making like 30, 35 grand a year, my dad. Uh, and then he quit uh, and wanted to build his own thing. And uh, he started a, a psychology center um, where he would diagnose children with learning disabilities. Um, and for many years, the parents would ask like, okay, like, thank you for diagnosing my child. It's good to know that they have a, a processing disorder. What do I do? Um, and unfortunately, like at the time, the only thing that my dad and, and psychologists around the country could say is here is uh, paperwork 
that will allow your child to be put in a, a special ed class and get extra testing for time. Nothing that actually like solved the underlying issue. So um, my dad basically traveled the country and pulled together a lot of research and built what we call this these brain training programs that literally work out uh, the mus like targeted muscles in the brain, just like when you go to lift weights in a simplified form. Um, and so he, he built an incredible lifestyle business, emphasis on lifestyle. Um, and it's been really cool to see the impact that he makes on, on kids and, and families. Um, but also that he built something from, from nothing. Um, and so anyway, when I was like 12 years old, I started to get into computers, uh, well, programming. And I like basically uh, pitched my dad on giving me $100 so I could buy like an Apple um, a developer account. And uh, I bought Objective-C for dummies. I like pitched him for 30 minutes. He said yes. And it was like a really huge deal because at that time he was just starting his company. And we didn't we didn't really have like go out to restaurant money. Um, and so I like went all in on that. And um, I think like that year or the next year was technically my first global, uh, not company, but like project in that I would get really involved in these online game development forums. And uh, I was under an alias. People had no idea. I was 12 and I would help them solve bugs and they would PayPal me $20. And um, this one guy hired me to build a game for him and his son. And I hired a engineer in Italy and a designer in uh, Portugal and we got to work. Um, and I was like this, pro it was all over email. If he heard my voice, he would have, <laughs> he would have known in a second. Um, but so that was, that was kind of my first time uh, building technology in a business perspective. And it just happened to be literally pure irony that it was, it technically was like a global quote unquote initiative. Um, so anyway, I was doing that. And um, then fast forward, I'm at the University of Florida. Um, when I'm there, I'm spending most of my time doing two things, neither of which was was uh, academics. <laughs> Not to say that I, I was a you know A and B student, but um, I spent my time doing two things. Number one was I was president of uh, my fraternity, and uh, number two is I was coaching speech and debate. So um, I I was a, a good speech and debate competitor in high school. I was the number one ranked speaker in the country my junior year. And then my senior year, um, my high school because I was not because, but I, that I was captain of my senior year was, was the number one ranked team in the country. When I went to college, I had the privilege of being invited to coach a school in Miami. Um, and so I did that. It took up a lot of my time. I was Skyping my students throughout the week, flying around the country a lot of weekends. Um, and I loved it. And um, I did well. I, you know, we the, the kids won and it was fantastic. And I got to kind of relive and, and keep having fun in, in the debate world, which I love. Uh, but it took up a lot of my time and I was never making uh, time to cook food for myself. So uh, I was ordering delivery all the time. And that's why I started Chef It, uh, to basically make it so that you can have an in-home personal chef for the same price as food delivery. We found a lot of inefficiencies in the personal chef market. And we were like, if we constrain them to a very limited menu, they could actually buy ingredients in bulk. You could order from them fast like Uber Eats. They could come in, cook family style, leave and go home to home in a neighborhood and be like hyper-efficient. Um, and that's why I got to Chef It. I am skipping. I, I skipped a little bit. I apologize. Before um, I started Chef It, I actually started a company called Season Pass. Um, and it was, I don't know if you guys remember Movie Pass, uh, but Movie Pass was like my absolute favorite thing. For the listeners, Movie Pass was a 10 or I think a $10 a month subscription where you can go to the movie theaters uh, free of charge. It was like an offline version of Netflix. 
And I loved it. It like got me and my friends out and, and hanging out way often, way more often than we otherwise would have uh, just because of, of budget. And um, I put all of my savings that I had uh, coming into college into the movie pass doc. Um, and I watched it all tank. Uh, I was like, it was like an all in or nothing type of thing. That's just the types of uh, bets that I like to take. <laughs> it's like asymmetrical upside. It was like, look, if I lose this, like, who cares? It's the savings that I have coming into my freshman year of college, like in, in the bigger picture, it's nothing, but if it works like, Oh, that's cool. That'll, that'll, you know, accelerate some things that I want to do. So I was in Israel, uh, in the literal desert. I was in the Bedouin tents and, um, watching the movie pass stock, like absolutely tank. And long story short, I was on stock twits, which is like a Twitter for stocks. And I saw, uh, on the movie pass channel or, or newsfeed, somebody posted this, the cell phone number of, uh, I think his name is Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC. So I texted Adam. And I pretended to be a shareholder of, of uh, AMC. And I was like, look, I don't want you guys to turn to the next blockbuster. Uh, I really think you guys should strike a deal with MoviePass, like whatever, whatever. Uh, and he, he responded, which I was not expecting. And it was very thoughtful. Um, and I was like totally time screwed, uh, literally like in the middle of the desert, um, many, many hours on the bus that day, whatever. And so I go to like start typing out a response to him. And before I knew it, the guy called me. I was like, so not ready for this. Um, but he made it very, very clear that um, AMC and none of the other none of the other major theaters would ever strike a deal with MoviePass. It screwed up their economics and MoviePass was burning a lot of money and they were just going to die. The premise there is that, again, MoviePass was charging 10 bucks a month and they were buying, uh, they were paying full price whenever you went to see a movie. They were spending the 15 bucks anytime you wanted to go get a ticket. I think the average person was going like three times a month. They were like, burning crazy amounts of money, their hope was that they would bring so many more people back to the movies and that these people would buy concessions when they were there. And you would, because it felt like you were getting there for free. So you were much more willing to pay for stupidly priced concessions that the theaters would create some sort of uh, revenue split with them. And that was their idea. So they were burning money in the hopes of getting so much demand, which they did. Like the user count was absolutely exploding that the theaters would, uh, would strike a deal with them. And Adam made it clear that they would not do that. Um, and the thing that we that I learned about the movie theater industry while watching that stock fall and reading into every piece of research I could find on it is that the um, movie theater industry was super consolidated. So it's like only four companies, uh, AMC, Movie Co. and like two other, Regal and one more, own like 95% of the theaters. So they just had to hold on and MoviePass was going to die. So long story short, my buddy and I were jamming and we realized that live events, meaning concerts, theater, sporting events, uh, these types of things were all, for the most part, independently owned. Um, so it'd be much easier to do a movie. It would have to be like a much more premium subscription. We were targeting like 60 bucks a month. Uh, but at first we were like, let's see if we can get in contact with the CEO of MoviePass and convince him to look at a, you know, an opportunity where, where they would have more negotiating power. And then we were like, screw it, let's just do it ourselves. So that was season pass. I spent like 10 months on that um, before launching anything, total waste of time. Um, we were trying to like strike deals with local arenas and stuff and it wasn't happening. And uh, you know, we were just wasting so much time that we were like, let's just fake it. So we put up a website and we decided that we would pay full price for these tickets if somebody asked to use them, just because it would at least allow us to test the demand uh, would somebody even buy this subscription? And the crazy thing was, is the thing that kept us going all those 10 months is we did a survey. 
We surveyed like a thousand people. We told them exactly what we wanted to build and how much it would cost. And it was like a stupid number of them. I think like 70% of people said they would pay for it. So we're like, oh my God, product market fit up the wazoo. Uh, <laughs> but it's a very different game between asking people if they would buy something and then actually asking them to open up their wallet and pay you for it. So long story short, when we faked it to make it happen and launched, not a single person bought it. I literally called everybody in my phone book. No one, no one bought it. Um, I found a guy on Twitter and I was like, I'll buy your first months for free. So I basically just gave him a bunch of tickets to live events for free for an entire month. And then he didn't renew month two. <laughs> um, and so my lesson learned there was like work way faster. I could have, you know, debunked that startup in, in two weeks. Uh, and so with Shefit, we, we launched, you know, within, I want to say eight weeks of ideation and something similar with, with Panther as well. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Uh, I will just say one thing. Um, it's kind of hilarious how your three companies, the first two are, are big time COVID no-nos. Like if you were if you're pitching that in the middle of COVID, people would be laughing at you. And then Panther is like the ultimate COVID like answer. And so I, I just I think yeah. that's funny. Um but you know, there's a lot there from your your upbringing with your your mom and your dad, and I'm sure that was extremely interesting. Have a psychologist father, and and um, you know, helping a lot of people, and then being 12, I was doing the same thing on Minecraft. Uh, people thought I was 30. I was yeah, yeah. you know in the <laughs> chat rooms talking to people. Um, yeah, that's that's really cool, dude. I'm I'm happy that you've finally landed somewhere. Um, but not and not even finally like you're only 23 you know and so i think it's i think that the the journey is is only beginning and i think it's really cool to to hear hear that and being in a, a yurt in israel i know lewis has uh, spent some time in israel so i'm sure he can empathize with you I, i've been at the bedouin tents right yeah yeah <laughs> very interesting experience over there he's on stock twits while riding a camel yeah literally <laughs> well like 30 minutes after the camel ride but yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> You eat the food on the floor, you sleep on the floor. They have very, very interesting, uh, it's like Turkish coffee over there. Yep. Very unique culture. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm just having fun. Um, so That's what it feel, sounds like. Yeah, I feel very confident about Panther because again, like it, it's a privilege that we're so young and we have like very, very sophisticated multi-billion dollar companies that trust us to power their global teams. Um, and, and the coolest thing is I get to, uh, bring people around the table that are so much smarter than me every single day. Um, and the team keeps leveling up, which is so exciting to see. But at the end of it, it's just about having fun, learning, doing things that like the part of the fun is like being able to hear from employees who are like, I literally wouldn't have worked for this company. I couldn't have had this opportunity of not for Panther. Um, so whether it, you know, it works or not, and I believe it will, but it's all hypothesis. It's all like we're testing things every day. One question that I asked, I think that kind of went unanswered though, is I guess like, why not go get a job somewhere? Like, what is it about you that you think like in this way where, okay, I'm going to start this company. I guess before this Panther. Company. Yeah. Like, I guess, why did you say no to convention? Or why were you betting on yourself? Well, you didn't, but, you okay. haven't finished school, right? Is that part no, of this? No. Yeah, I dropped out of UF, um, funny enough, to work on Season Pass, which was the worst failure of them all, um, my, my junior year. 
But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I've had two real jobs in my life. Number one was a sleepaway camp counselor at Camp Judea. And number two was um, was coaching debate, uh, which was like a very part-time thing. So, uh, you know, the question is like, what's the, what's the framework? Um, which I think is understanding, like, number one, where am I going to have the most fun? Number two, where am I going to learn the most? Number three, where am I going to make the most amount of money, right? Like, uh, from a, if, I, I very much like to... Uh, work to live not the other way around uh that's you know tr part of the culture that we're trying to build at panther is this shift in uh it should be life work balance um and so those are the three things i care about when like figuring out like what am i actually excited to do when i get up every day and um i just don't think there's anything else where i could have more fun um learn more and uh, have the opportunity to, you know, create more economic opportunity for myself and people that are important for me, to me. Um, it just comes down to that. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, like if you ask anybody on the Panther team, I acknowledge almost every day, uh, hey, I don't know how to do this. Or uh, here's my opinion, but like I am so not the expert here. So curious what you think. Um, I do not pretend to, to know it all because I more than often do not know it. Um, and so I, I have the opportunity of being a sponge, hiring best in class people to run marketing, sales, ops, legal, finance, and like just absorbing it all. So it's fun. One question I have for the future of the company, do you see, you know, paying with crypto being like a big part of the business in the future? Like what's your opinion on how crypto decentralization can impact uh, the flow of capital that you're in? It's interesting. So what's my opinion? My opinion is, is hell yeah. Uh, and I'll give you my opinion. I'll, I'll flesh it out. The challenge is regulation today. Um, so to first answer like your core question, yes, I believe that there is so many inefficiencies when it comes to moving money around the world, whether that is the time that it takes or the related fees. Um, that and, and all the middlemen involved, all the middlemen involved, that uh, I definitely do believe that there should be uh, a form of currency or currencies that transcends borders um, and just, you know, are, are widely applicable no matter where anyone is. I would love and I do believe again, you know, I hope I I hope, believe, whatever the right word is, that Panther is a 15, 100, whatever company, a year company. Um, so I do believe at some point that, yes, it will be super straightforward to pay everybody in ETH or whatever it is. Um, I held back from saying Bitcoin because I actually don't own any Bitcoin. I only own Ethereum and Solana. Um, but that being said, for legal reasons, uh, to run payroll which means you are an entity in a country and you are paying someone for employment. Um, that has to be done in the um, local currency of whatever country. So one of the quote unquote magic moments of Panther is that when our customers click uh, approve payroll and it's all denominated in their what we call invoice currency. So like USD for American customers, Euro for whatever. Um, we're pulling the money from their bank account in their local currency and their invoice currency, excuse me. And we move that money all around the world and all the employees are paid in their local currencies um, without them having to worry about how that works or for the calculations or anything like that. Uh, but it is expensive, uh, FX fees. And, you know, we have to collect payroll at the beginning of the month to pay it on time by the end of the month. So there's a lot of room for efficiency there. 
the area where uh, paying in crypto today makes sense, um, and Panther has new product lines launching in the next couple of months with some uh, industry-shattering partnerships. I, I can't drop it preemptively, but really, really excited for this. Um, is you know we're going to have a contractor platform where uh, we help make it easy to pay service providers, which are different from internal teammates or employees, um, and. If you're paying someone for a service, which is different from employing them, you can pay them however they would like to be paid in bananas or, or Bitcoin or, or dollars or uh, peso. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so where it comes to our contractor platform, we will make it really easy for companies to pay in the currency that makes sense for them. And then for each of the contractors to withdraw in any method that they'd like, uh, including crypto or any currency or PayPal wise, Payoneer, whatever it is. It's on the roadmap is, is the answer, hopefully. I should have just said that. Yeah, I should have just said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you explained how. You explained how, uh, which was very helpful. So one question, and I, I don't know if you can tell me if you do or don't want to answer it, but what are some like pockets of the earth that just have insane talent pools that people are, are unaware of? I don't know if like, your, comp your company's kind of motto is to be agnostic to specific countries or not, but if there's just like shout out X country that just is unbelievably great and people just don't know it. I mean, I could I could shout out the quote unquote underdog countries that uh, we've hired from where the people that we've hired were just being blunt better than every U.S. candidate that uh, that applied by a magnitude. Um, that would be Azerbaijan, Nigeria, Kenya, uh, the U.K., uh, Portugal. I could go on and on. Nice. Um, but I think the more the, the more important thing here is that. Um, the beauty is that the companies today that acknowledge that remote and being location agnostic is the future, you don't need, it's not that you need to find a country with a uh, hundred thousand qualified people. You get to poach the top 0.0001% in each of these countries or in, in the world. Um, and so that's the thing, right? Like we, we hired Franz in, um, Nigeria and he, he immigrated there from Cameroon. Um, and he's talking to us about the entire engineering community there that's growing real fast. And by the way, like we will see this multiply as, um, they, the, the people that, for example, we hire have great economic success and because everybody's got equity and then they reinvest that in their local ecosystems and you know these things there's there's a natural flywheel here but that's what i get excited I didn't about know. yeah yeah i don't know they're just we we don't look location first so for example we didn't say let's um let's look in nigeria and then we found france there uh, we found him on angel list um you know that's how i found you actually on angel list cool yeah I was looking for jobs on AngelList, and then y'all came up as the one you know, AngelList. For people who've never looked for jobs on AngelList, they have these like kind of colorful tags for like exciting things companies have, like fast growing, same investor as in other prominent company, uh, remote culture, and like these kind of colored symbols. And you had like all the symbols. I was like, what's this thing? I've never seen it. And then I kind of found the rabbit hole to your Twitter, and that's how we got here. So cool. AngelList is, is another pro magnet, I guess. They're. Uh... Uh, there may or may not be an uh, industry-shattering partnership between Panther and a company that rhymes with Schmangelist in the next couple <laughs> of months. <laughs> yeah.
Did you used to work AngelList as an investor? Because you have on your LinkedIn that you like did angel investing and like the company it's through is AngelList or did they just like facilitate no, it? No, no, that's that's like, a, yeah, AngelList facilitated it. Um, that is, a, I think that is a flaw of LinkedIn, which is that if you want to put that you're an angel investor, you have to pick a company. And so everybody picks AngelList because that's the company that facilitates it all. Um, I've made 25 very, very, very small, like literally minimum, uh, you know, minimum allowed bets. Um some through AngelList, some direct. You had some good calls in there, though, as far as I remember. I don't remember the full list, but I remember seeing a couple that were probably... Metallic? Yeah. Pretty... Copy oh, yeah, Metallic. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. I uh, I found Metallic yeah. um, early on. Well, I say that. Early on for me. I'm not sure how far along they were after we interviewed Wes KO. And, um, man, I just love their, their product and their company I actually ended my subscription just for the sake of, of, uh, clarity. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, uh, I got a new, apartment. <laughs> I got a new apartment to well, furnish Kyle. That's my bad. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still in college. I'm, I'm not buying much home decor for my apartment. Um, for sure. <laughs> and so it should make sense for me, but I will definitely renew in the future. Uh, just because I, I love the, the branding, the, the, the luxury piece of it. Um, so what did you see about that company when you were, when you were investing? Um, well, so I was chatting with Jeremy, not chatting, but like going back and forth over email with Jeremy today, cause we're helping them hire in Manila in the Philippines, but, um, they Costco mm -hmm. is such an intriguing business in that Costco's, I think profit margin on an item is like 11%, which is like way, way smaller than your targets and whatnot. But they make a killing on their recurring memberships and people love, like people cult around Costco. And as Indeed. a consumer, me and all my buddies, like we, we invest in nice things. We like buy things once and we buy like <laughs> the best that we can afford in hopes of keeping it for, you know, until we're gone. Um, and we just felt that way with Italic. I've, I've like ordered everything almost mm -hmm. <laughs> from Italic. Um, that's relevant to me at least before um, I was able to invest. And I just reached out to Jeremy. I told him, I think the email subject line was literally like, I'm addicted to Italic. <laughs> I like told him <laughs> how much I, I wanted to be a part of it. But I think the, the most exciting thing about Italic is uh, up until today, roughly, they have been a store meaning they have purchased, they've made incredible deals with um, luxury factories that do the manufacturing for these incredible companies, your Louis Vuittons, your Lululemon, like these types of things. And they basically Lecrisette. said, yeah, we'll, we'll white label it. Um, we'll sell it unbranded. And they've been able to make those deals and make that happen, um, which reduces the cost by like, I don't know, 75% or something to the end consumer. But the more exciting thing that they're working on is uh, becoming more of a marketplace. Um, so I don't want to, I don't know how much of that has been announced. So I don't want to get too in depth, mm -hmm. but um, I think that's a much cooler opportunity, which is uh, imagine every, you know, luxury factory um gets to list their own products and directly sell to consumers. Uh, and Ita Italic is just, you know, not trying to make money off that. So facilitating it, being hyper-efficient and just making money because consumers are happy to pay a subscription for access. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, actually My, in that context, the I've seen the, um, I guess, I'm not, the, the word, is escaping me, but the comparison to Costco or like Costco for luxury goods uh, a bunch of times. And I, I, it hasn't really connected, but as a marketplace for luxury um, manufacturers, it totally does. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. To go, 
for, for consumers to only pay for the uh, manufacturing costs plus some amount of margin for the factory, but not to pay brand or retail. Mm -hmm. That's that's the exciting opportunity that I think people would, um, you know, happily pay the subscription for. I, I, I will segment like talking about investments, like one investment that I made like just six months ago or so was in a company called Jeeves um, to, to give you a little bit of background. So we at Panther to date have used ramp, which I mentioned before is that credit card for startups. They've blown up like crazy uh, and they it, ramp is an incredible product. Um, the challenge, though, is ramp does not work for a sizable portion of our team because of where they live in the world. Um, and not being supported by the Visa network and being just auto-marked as fraud just because of where they live. Um, and so what Jeeves is building is um, it's credit cards for globally distributed teams. Um, and so it allows you to uh, pay in any currency um, without any fees. And it's just it's built for the use case of teams of the future. So I'm really interested to see how that market plays out. But uh, I, I had the privilege of investing like less than, it feels like less than six months ago uh, in the seed round. And the company just announced, uh, I want to say like three or four days ago that it's now worth like half a billion bucks. It was like pretty cool to see. Again, I've made very, very small bets. Uh, so it's not like actually worth that much, but it's just cool. Um, and it's, you know, it's hugely uh, tangent to what we're building at Panther. I think so. I think if we had more time, I'd ask you about how, how you got into angel investing and kind of all that, because it sounds fun the way you're describing it. If a lot of people are, you know, I know of platforms like Republic that have really brought the barriers down to entry for people who don't have twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars angel checks. They just want to invest one hundred, two hundred, five hundred, maybe a thousand bucks. I don't know where, where you fall into that. If AngelList is the tier above Republic or not, but I think that's very yeah. interesting. It's a thousand dollar bets is the is the minimum, and that's all I can afford. Oh, wow. So I'm, I might have to look yeah. into that because that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we told you before we started recording that our goal was roughly an hour and we, we have hit You're that. Good. So I don't want to keep you too long. This has been a very fun podcast. Kyle and I, I think, are both extremely excited uh, to watch your hypothesis, hopefully Absolutely. get proven correct over the years. Maybe some pivoting. I'm maybe excited. Not, I'm really excited to I watch. I think yeah. it's a massive problem that you're Thank taking you. on. And import, more importantly, it does seem like the people... I mean, the companies are obviously benefiting from hiring the best employees for a potentially reduced rate, but then these people have access to opportunities uh, that they would not have without having to ditch their original home lifestyle. So it seems like it's an right. incredible service to the world if it plays out. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to throw out a final point of discussion in the last like Please. handful of minutes, if that's okay. Because one thing that you just mentioned, and to I be got fair, time. Yeah, we've I'm got just, time. Just We're just okay, so we'll, we'll stay as long yeah. as you want to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm happy to stay another five or 10 minutes or something, yeah. but one, one thing that you, that you mentioned, and, and I teased to this earlier, which is that, um, historically speaking, hiring, uh, individuals in other places can often be, uh, more affordable. Um, and it's just, um, I don't know, there's a huge discussion to be, to be had around global salaries, whether people should be paid, um, you know, purely based off of where they are in the world and what's really good money in, Lagos, Nigeria, um, or like, should people just get paid straight up? There's like a rate for an engineer with 10 years of experience, and it doesn't matter where in the world that you live, that you get that. Um, and so long story short, like that's a massive discussion, but the things that I think are actually very interesting is that we are seeing the salaries of knowledge workers that are working in quote unquote remote locations from a U.S. perspective, um, 
rise astronomically fast. Mm. Um, I, I apologize because I can't reference the, the study at hand, but um, I saw a study over the last couple of months that referenced that in India, the salary for, or I should say the wage for engineers has grown by almost 50% over the last wow. year. That's, I mean, so, the, yeah. the butterfly effects of that sort of, that's an insane statistic for the lives of literally a billion people. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. the amount of good that uh, and, I can do, and, like, that's crazy. So the interesting thing here is there are, there is a half a trillion dollar industry called outsourcing, which is basically middlemen who companies pay double or triple the actual salary of the end individual that they work with. Um, and these outsourcing firms have worked because it's basically, uh, it was the only way. Exactly. It was the only way that you could quote unquote access said talent, uh, because you didn't have an entity over there, by the way. Um, and so, you know, Panther believes in a world where you pay a simple SaaS fee to hire anyone anywhere in the world, but then you pay them whatever you want to pay them. And so if you're willing to pay uh, $150,000 for an engineer because uh, they're incredible, and by the way, one in SF would cost 250, like that engineer should get 150. They shouldn't get 40. Uh, and so, yeah, the effects of that are going to be instrumental. Uh, but I think if Panther succeeds, we will we will take out a good chunk of the outsourcing industry. Not to say that like all outsourcing is for that use case. Some of it is like, look, I just want somebody to handle it and I'll pay for it, whatever. But uh, a, a healthy chunk of it. Yeah, healthy chunks, just the currency arbitrage or cost of living arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that, that creates interesting uh, implications for uh, those in uh, quote unquote wealthier economies. So someone on Twitter today like tagged me in something that were like in a remote hire from anywhere world, like US people are going to be disadvantaged. And I, I really don't agree with that. Number one is I think that's, uh, that, that perspective is very much like a, um, only one person can win. And if one person's being helped, that means Scarcity everyone mindset. else is being helped. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, but I also don't think that it acknowledges that uh, like our, our, our thesis and like part of the part of the way that we pitch Panther to potentially be if it works very, very large is by saying that we believe in a future where every knowledge worker position on Earth uh, gets optimized by hiring the best person on the planet. So it'll be incredibly regular for Americans to work mm -hmm. for companies all over the world for companies all over the world to hire people everywhere else. And you'll have all this kind of cross-border relationship where again, Panther owns the employment agreement, uh, the employment relationship and makes it all easy. Um, and so the part that I don't think we've studied enough is what happens when Americans truly get access to all of all, like many more opportunities. And so that's, that's a kind of KPI that I want us to study and do at the very least an annual report on, which is what percent of the American population is employed by international companies. That'll be interesting to watch. Have you ever uh, um, dived into any of Taylor Pearson's work, specifically the end of jobs, the book? Uh, okay. So I, the name didn't ring a bell. I did read the jobs biography many, many years, like when it came out. No, no, no. Uh, um, this is the end. It's called the end of jobs by Taylor Pearson. Uh, no. It was written about, no, it was no. written in about 2015, I think. Um, and it's, it is all about, uh, just like the future of remote work 
And, you know, obviously from 2015, he's looking forward into the future in, in a way that I can't really imagine. Um, and I read it, I guess it's been a year now, so a lot of it slipped my mind. But it, it sounds a lot like um, he has some of those same ideas that you've that you're working through now. He's written about them in long form. And so I think you should give that a look or give that a read. Um, but, you know, Matt, Lewis and I... It's a cart. Lewis and I greatly appreciate you coming on. I, I feel like this podcast will probably be a warm up for you. I bet you're going to get on some big name pods here pretty quickly. Uh, and I, I hope that we've great, done a good job getting you ready for those. Um, if you're a big name pod listening to this for your research, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. Uh, but, but thank you. And we hope that you have a great night and that Panther continues to, to fulfill its great mission. Thank What's you guys. the call Thank to action you. for anyone who, uh, who wants to uh, keep go. up with you? Twitter is the best place. Panther is the best place. Uh, yeah, uh, my Twitter is, is Matt Redler. Matt with two T's. Red like the color L-E-R. Uh, Panther.co. Um, follow us along. We, we like to tell great stories of incredible people from around the world and, and great companies. And um, we're here to help however we can. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was really incredible. I appreciate the opportunity to tell the story and for you guys to pull me into uh, a lot of these memories that like makes me smile. But uh, you guys are, are onto big things. And so I hope that I am your warm up for some incredible guests that you guys have in the future. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for Thanks, that. Man. And that wraps up that interview with Matt Redler from Panther HR. I mean, such a cool big vision for Panther and like, Obviously, you know, he believes that he's going to do everything in the can to, to make it uh, that grand slam that we're talking about. And that relates to my first takeaway, which is just about asymmetric bets. And I think it's something that he talked about a lot in this interview and probably something that he thinks about a lot, which is just like, um, you know, the downside is, is minimal relative to the virtually unlimited upside of being the number one employer in the entire world from like a technical perspective and being um, and being, you know, that foreign subsidiary for these large multinational corporations or whatever. It's like if you, um, you know, know your downside and the upside is incalculable, then you've got an asymmetric bet. And, and that's what he seems to be focusing on uh, from angel investing to his own company. And then the second thing is just the sheer power of the unlocked talent that um that panther is is like going after um I, I think that i said something about it either in the interview or right after the interview about the end of jobs which just talks about like how insane the, the job markets are shifting and if you want to learn more about that go listen to our interview with taylor pearson the author of that book um but it's just you can't even begin to understand what this could do for um those communities in which these really really smart people um, can't find jobs or can't find work like with a company they'd want to because of these barriers to entry and barriers of efficiency that Panther is slowly taking away um, or fast quickly either way. Uh, and then the third thing, and it's something that uh, Matt talks about when he talks about about his team, and it's it's who not how. And you know, I think Russell Brunson's the first person that I heard this from, but like. He is not saying that he has all the answers or that he's got all the the, um, the secrets or the keys to this like crazy new asymmetric opportunity. No, he he's humble and and straightforward with that. He doesn't know anything really. I mean, none of us do. And so, 
what he's doing is putting together a really good team by asking who, not how. how not how do I set up this foreign subsidiary in Azerbaijan, but who can I talk to to make it happen? Uh, and those are my takeaways. Awesome conversation. I can't wait to watch Panther as it moves forward through time. Thank you, Kyle. And uh, no, my shirt's not inside out. I just checked the pockets on the outside. It just kind of looks inside out. Uh, that was super relevant for everyone listening. First takeaway from me is that barriers to entry in certain areas might be lower than you expect. So I kind of thought this guy was this really sophisticated angel investor and know, cutting checks for 10, 25 grand or something. Uh, and we asked him about the interesting companies he got involved in. He said, look, I'm making thousand dollar bets in these companies. Like I had no idea that was an option. I think there are plenty of people who listen to this podcast that make thousand dollar bets in cryptos and, uh, traditional stocks. Uh, and it seems like from doing that, he's gotten to make a lot of really interesting relationships with some of these people. Uh, we brought up Italic, which is a company that Kyle and I are both big fans of. And he talks about Jeremy, the CEO, like they're, like they're buds. Uh, and I'm not necessarily not believing him about that point is when you invest in these angel companies, the payoff can kind of be nonlinear in that you have these relationships with other people who are raising money. They might be able to introduce you to investors. You have people who can give you advice about starting your companies, etc. So don't assume the barriers to entry are as big as they seem. Second is this idea of sitting in the flow of funds. So he talked about the big picture, right? If one, like you said, Kyle, if he's the largest global employer, that means he's sitting in the middle of literally trillions of dollars of value transfer in the form of salaries. People are getting paid. They pay through him, et cetera. People are hiring, they hire through him, et cetera. Uh, it's kind of like how everyone wonders how finance is such a big industry. Well, it's like the center, uh, the analogy of I've heard, if it's a, if you're in the middle of a sand glass and there's a trillion beads of sand moving from one side to the other, the person sitting in the middle, which is finance, uh, and if they capture a couple of those beads of sand, they become absolutely ginormous. And he seems like he's in a similar position in the recruiting hiring industry, which is really, really interesting way of framing everything. Third thing is the abundance mindset stuff we talked about at the end. He kind of talked about the superiority complex Americans have and how they're fearful that they're going to lose their jobs to a global talent pool without realizing that that also means that Americans might have opportunities to work for companies outside the United States. It's really potentially an everyone gets better because everyone gets better situation. Uh, because there are amazing companies outside the United States where you might be the best candidate for, uh, for whatever reason. And seeing that growth everywhere could actually be a good thing. That's what I have to say about this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm very excited to see the future play out. Like you're saying, the humanitarian benefits of people in remote areas suddenly earning Silicon Valley salaries. That is going to be an insane shift on those communities and companies being able to hire the best person for the best price, which is very, very interesting. That's it for this episode. We publish one roughly every week, which means if you check back here in roughly one week, you'll see another episode. If you can't wait until then, we have a lot of really great episodes in the past. You can scroll down wherever you are right now and probably find them. And if you want to show your support for us, we all that we ask is you leave a rating or a view on Apple iTunes to show your support. See you in a week or so with the next one. Bye-bye.